Hello and welcome to the My VA Dayton podcast coming to you from Dayton, Ohio. This is the show where we talk with veterans in the Western Ohio region to share their stories and share what's happening at the Dayton VA Medical Center. I'm Scott Lease, your host with co-host Greg Tucker. And we have with us today Army veteran Margaret Kreckmeyer. Great to have you with us today, Margaret. Well, thank you for asking me. Yeah, we're, we're thrilled to have you. Uh, Margaret is a retired lieutenant colonel uh, from the U.S. Army. She was actually in the Army Nurse Corps, correct? Nursing Corps, I should say. Nurse Corps, um, mm-hmm. She was uh, also, uh, in, she's also involved with the Nurses Organization of Veteran Affairs, also known as NOVA. NOVA is a uh, valuable resource comprised of many nurses who have graduated from military nurse to the VA nurse. Uh, and uh, NOVA recently selected you as their volunteer of the year, correct? Correct. That's fantastic. And you've, I also understand you've been inducted to the Ohio Veterans Hall of Fame. Right. That was 2008. Yeah. And then just April 30th, I got to put a point where I come from, Greene County, just started the first ever Greene County Hall of Fame. So 26 uh, veterans were inducted, and all of us have been inducted previously. So you got a wealth of leadership here in yes. the area. Yes, we do. Uh, in and, the Miami Valley. And you represent them well here, too. Uh, but before we get to know a little bit more about you, um, we're going to actually put you to the test. Okay. That's right, Margaret. It's time to play Don't Tell Me, I Think I Know That. This is the game where we put our guests to the test of their knowledge of military trivia. And it's also a game where our listeners can play along uh, to see if their minds are mired in mounds of military minutiae as ours are. Are you ready to take that challenge? I guess so. Okay. Well, I have to. I have to admit something. You know, I was inducted into the army as a captain, so I didn't really learn all of the ranks, uh, like say normal. Uh, non-commissioned officers and everybody else that earns their stripes before you really get there. I just was thrown into basic. Well, fantastic. But you know what? I actually have to confess something here. Um, We actually have made your questions a little bit harder than the questions that we've thrown at the average uh, visitor with us. Uh, And But I think you're really up to the challenge because uh, your questions, well, we normally uh, pair them up with the service. And as you were saying, you know, you don't possibly even know all the ranks that uh, you came in as captain. this is this is all nurse centric. Okay. So uh, we're gonna, and it's actually military nurse centric. So here's your first question: um, Who is the British nurse uh, who is often referred to as the mother of military and modern nursing? Would it be Florence Henderson, Florence Ziegfeld, Florence Kelly, or Florence Nightingale? Oh, all nurses had better learn this before they graduate. This is Florence Nightingale. Oh, uh, That's right. Absolutely. Florence Nightingale formed the first nucleus of recognized nursing service for the British Army during the Crimean War in 1854. Following the war, Nightingale uh, fought to institute employment of women nurses in British military hospitals. And by 1860, she had succeeded in establishing an army training school for military nurses at the Royal Victoria Military Hospital in Netley, Hampshire, England. Now, here's your bonus question. This one doesn't count. You really have three questions, but this is bonus for you. Where was she born? Well, you just said it. She's in England. I don't know. A lot of people came out of Edinburgh, but I know that she was like an only 
child type of a person. So she she never married. And um, that's all I can say about old Flo. But I can tell you, you know, just she did that in 54. You know, our Civil War started in 1861. Yes, yes. And Dorothea Dix, Dragon Lady Dix, is the person that really organized the first group of women to really serve as nurses. Right. But now, do you know where do you know where Florence was born? Nope. Well, she was actually born in Florence, Italy, while she oh. was born in an English family. She uh, was named after the city of her birth. Oh, okay. Just uh, another bit of trivia there for you. Now now you're even more empowered. Okay? Oh, yeah, I am. So now, on to your second question. In response to what war did the United States add 1,500 nurses to their military personnel? Would it have been the American Revolutionary War, the U.S. Civil War, the Spanish-American War, or the war between the Hatfields and McCoys? Well, I know there was 3,000 in, in for the Civil War, so I guess I'll have to go with the Spanish-American War because the Army nurses were not legitimized until we didn't start until 1903. Yes, well, actually, in 1898, after the Spanish-American War, the United States added 1,500 nurses to their military personnel. A year later, in 1899, the Surgeon General recognized the importance of these nurses and established a reserve group of nurses with specific criteria to prepare for future wars. Now, here's your final question. You're doing great. Two out of two. Hmm. Let's see if we can make it three out of three. Uh, in 1901, what did the U.S. Congress formally establish? Would it have been ANSMU, the U.S. Army Nurses Synchronized Marching Unit, or S or U.S. ACE, the U.S. Army Corps of Engineers, or ANC, the U.S. Army Nurse Corps, or AFES, the Army Air Force Exchange Service? It would have to be ANC, I think. That's correct. The United States Army Nurses Corps, AN or ANC, uh, was formally established by the U.S. Congress in 1901. I believe you, you called that one, right? Mm-hmm. And, well, I, mean, I said 1903 because, yeah. you know, of how things get done. Yeah. <laughs> Congress started, but they or initialized it, but they didn't start until 1903. It was one of six medical special branches or corps of officers, along with medical enlisted personnel, which compromised the Army Medical Department. The ANC is the nursing service for the U.S. Army and provides nursing staff in support of the Department of Defense medical plans. And the ANC is comprised entirely of registered nurses. Well, so Greg, what has Margaret won for playing our game? Margaret, we have a set of four Dayton VA industrial strength chip clips designed by NASA's aerospace engineers to keep your snacks fresh at home or wherever you may be traveling in the near future. (laughs) Compliments of the Dayton VA. Okay, we're going to take a quick break now. When we come back, we'll learn more from Margaret uh, Kreckmeyer about what she's doing these days. Our veterans put everything on the line to protect our freedom. We may never be able to repay them for their sacrifice, but we can show them just how much we appreciate all they've done. Every day, hundreds of people just like you volunteer to help our veterans. You can help by simply sharing your time, lending a warm smile, a supportive hand, or a sympathetic ear to someone who needs it. Everyone can do something to make our veterans know how much we appreciate their service. What will you do? 
And we're back with Army veteran Margaret Kruntmeyer. So, Margaret, um, tell us about the uh, Nurses Organization of Veteran Affairs, or otherwise known as NOVA. Um, what is your involvement with the organization? Well, actually, Dayton was one of the first chapters. But back in 1980, um, we were meeting challenges. Physicians said that they didn't have enough physicians working in the VA. And that was when we nurses found out how important it was to advocate not only for our veterans, you know, in the legislative arena, but also for our own practice. So whatever we could do at the bedside for our veterans had to be legislated, not mandated. So that even meant staffing. So in 1980, uh, we were not allowed to, to testify on the Hill. And in fact, our chief nurse for all the VA uh, had to take her own personal vacation to come off just to, to listen in. And it was asked that day, well, to another profession, and we worked together as a team. But uh, the question was asked um, and said, well, you have a shortage, but what about nurses? You know, they represent over one third of your workforce in the whole VA system. Are you going to be experiencing a shortage of nurses? And the, the answer was from the other profession, oh no, you'll always have, you know, there's always enough nurses. So that's when we found out we didn't want someone else speaking up for us. And so that's how we got created. And uh, I don't know if you ever heard of a lady named Bernice Ferguson, but she really was so well known internationally and everything. She was a great leader. And so she took uh, the capability of having all of her chief nurses from all 171 hospitals at that time that we had and said, okay, ladies and gentlemen, if you want some other persons to talk to you uh, for you, then fine. If not, do something. That's how Nova got born. And so um, am I going out there picketing and stuff? No, uh, that's not my style. But the thing is, when you look at nurses and our profession, we're not seen as self-serving. You know, uh, we're, the opposite. we're just the opposite. And so we don't have money and, and people out there that knows about nurses, but we do have the passion for caring for others. And that the our, our charge as a nurse is if, if our person that we're caring for doesn't have the strength and energy to care for themselves, we need to to bolster that individual up until they can get back on their feet. And a lot of our veterans come to us in many different torn up ways, mentally, physically, right. emotionally, and spiritually. So right. with that, that's where we charge the hill in behalf of our veterans. And all I can say is if you ever read Gallup polls, the only time our profession has ever come in second to who do you believe your information from was in 9-11 that year when the firefighters firefighters beat us out by one. So we have been, um, you know, a credible profession. And I really want to see the new nurses coming in maintain that criteria as part of their value system. As mentioned prior to us going into the recording, you had received your, you recently was honored with an award from NOVA. Oh, okay. That was for uh, volunteer of the year. But uh, prior to that, they, they're tired of me because I said, don't give me any more awards because um, 
I, you know, what can I say? But the thing is being recognized by your peers is always a good feeling. And uh, that is, it was a good warm fuzzy. And to say that when you're given that type of uh, award or something that just spurs you to want to do more. And you know, you'd also mentioned that you uh, are inducted in the Ohio Veterans Hall of Fame. Tell us about that experience. You know, how, how, did, how did that come about? Well, I, I guess it's a fact that you volunteer for more than one an organization. You're not just veteran-centric. And our veterans are out there really making a difference, I think, in the world. And one of the things for your Veterans Hall of Fame, it's what you do after your service that qualifies you for this particular award. So for me personally, um, I was very active with the American Cancer Society. At one time, Ohio had its own division. So, you know, being a board of trustee, I started off as being the nurse of hope back in the 80s. Oh, my husband didn't like that one because I put about 25,000 miles on my car that year. But uh, the other thing um, is the fact that you really stay engaged and knowledge is power. And that's something that in my profession, if I can empower someone to take better care of themselves, to have them, you know, have a better outcome. That's what I'm all about, and that's with cancer. In cancer, we know that at least you know 35% of cancers are lifestyle choices that are not made correctly. So if we can spread the word of how to take care of that, that particular diagnosis doesn't have to be pinned on you as much. So that's where I started, so I got credit for that. And then for NOVA at the national level, um, you know, to do a lot of different things. Uh, I did a lot of stuff with um, working with legislative thing and going out and teaching and networking and also helping to mentor our n- other nurses to get up to different levels because that's what it's out. When you're a veteran, you want to have a nurse that knows how to, to, to do things and everything, but that nurse also needs the support of their colleagues. So I'm not a queen bee. I don't know if you've heard about nurses and the queen bee syndrome. I got here, lady, you got to figure out how to do it yourself. Mm-mm, that's not the way it should be. It's not a professional thing. So Nova changes all that. So well, it's obvious that you've had some uh, great mentorship. Uh, you know, let's actually step back in time a little ways and talk about what inspired you to be a nurse and um, what, why did you choose to go in the army? Tell us about that. Well, you got to figure out when I was born, okay? For those who know, 1947 was a very good year. But when I was in high school, I didn't want to become a teacher. I was way too short to ever become an airline stewardess. And I, uh, so nursing was about my career. But I also had a wonderful family system. And my father, actually being a music and a choir director, he was, um, for his third job, he was uh, directing the Missouri Baptist Nurses Choir, school choir. And so here I am at a very early age being passed around to all of these student nurses and everything. And that really impacted on me to become a nurse is because, hey, I was in, I was indoctrinated early. And so why the Army? Well, that's something else. Um, my husband who is my hero, a Vietnam veteran. Um, when we got married, I pretty much, you know, he went the ROTC route in order to stay in school because back then, you know, the lottery could grab you out of school and send you to Vietnam. So uh, he was very proud of his work as an ROTC and Persian rifle. So I really was 
adapted of working in military hospitals. They moved us nine times in eight years. Uh, but the thing is, when he came back from Vietnam and I was working, um, you know, in a, in a military setting uh, as a civilian, I said, well, I can go back to school. I'm not that far away from we're at Fort Lewis, Washington and Tacoma. I only have to drive 50 miles to school at University of Washington. How did I get in the Army? Actually, I wanted the Air Force. Uh, because McCord was right next to Fort Lewis. Yeah. And back then, the Army was really downsizing their test pilot maintenance officers, anybody that flew. You know, you got retrained to do something else or you got rifted. So he was on the rift list. So I said, fine, I want to go into the Air Force and uh, get you know, get my nurse practitioner program completely paid for. I had already done a semester successfully, got my ace in that. And he was... Um, and with, he had a mechanical engineering degree with a, a minor in electrical. Plus, he was a test. He had over three thousand flight hours. Could fly anything in the inventory except for a flying crane. They only had two in the army for that one. But he was dual rated in many things. So, bottom line, the army wouldn't release him. They would rift him, but they wouldn't let him transfer to the air force who wanted him. So I ended up wearing green, and they didn't rift him. So that's how. <laughs> so that's how we, well, we did that. Well, probably a good thing since you didn't. Since he was in the army, he didn't get rifted. That you weren't in the air force. And I'm wearing green today, so you, you can are. see that I'm yes. a winter and when you get your colors done. So I, I you know, I can wear uh, army colors very nicely. Yeah. I can wear greens, blacks, uh, and, and since our listeners can't see you, they they didn't see that you also came in with an army jacket. So you are yes. army to the core, still uh, still wearing the colors proudly. Mm -hmm. um, you know, you had mentioned uh, the time that you went in uh, and that it was different for women back then. Uh, tell us what uh, challenges you faced as a woman in the military. Were there, you know, obstacles in your path and how did you overcome them? And how did you attain the rank of lieutenant colonel? I'm, I'm sure that was not something that was common for women in that era. Well, with the various branches of service, for those who are listening, Ladies, if you want to get promoted, join the Army because there's more people in the Army than there are in the other branches. So therefore, you know, you're thrown in a pool and everything, and so you can rise faster. But how it was for me, how I came in as a captain, I, I almost really got annihilated because had the Army waited another 56 days, I would have been brought in as a major. And for me, being a junior officer was saving grace, but having the rank of captain, when I was taking, I was working in a family practice residency program, and all the residents came in as captain. So we all had equal playing field when it came to who, who overrides who, and that was very helpful. But what I really found, and you'll see this in a book, I don't know if I could do this, but we actually have a nonprofit here in Dayton, Ohio, called Children's Historical Publishing. And in that, uh, Judge, uh, our U.S. District Judge Rice, this has been in existence since 2003, they just came out with a book last year called Empowered Women, the History of, Mili History of Ohio Military Women. So in that book, you, you already interviewed Cassie Barlow. She wrote the preface. But it really talks about the challenges. And, and we have a common thread is the fact that, you know, back then men still did that. I mean, I can certainly remember in basic training as a captain, having the sergeant come in and tell me, uh, if you are um, caught behind enemy lines, taken as prisoner of war, even though you are a captain, 
your NCO is going to be in charge of, of anything. Anything goes. You will never be leading anybody. So and then so I said, well, that's uh, whatever. And so with that, all I can tell you with that, my map reading course, gentlemen, um, he came uh, NCO came in and said, OK, um, and it was toward the end of the day. He says, OK, for your map reading, uh, just find your sergeant and just stay with him and stay off of main roads if you're if you're behind good advice for anybody actually yes and so i said okay so i told my husband that and he just shook his head because he really had to come up the hard way and then um he said i have more time in the meal lines than you have in what you did to get on the floor they didn't ask that of of military nurses they wanted our skill set and our expertise at the bedside and anywhere else so uh, i can definitely tell you that um, i could you know when someone asked me I was going to be put in the shock clinic for immunization. Somebody was getting orders there at Fort Bragg to go someplace, and they brought you in these things, companies, battalions. So I said, uh, so I'm doing a battalion? And they said, yeah. And I said, well, how many are in a battalion? They said, oh, maybe three to five companies. I said, how many are in a company? And then they looked at me sort of strangely. So, I mean, I didn't know how many syringes to get out, okay? Mm-hmm. So that's how things go. But it's it's... It's that, but the only thing you'll notice is the fact that when I was there for over two years and I did all of this stuff, I had to write all the awards. So I wrote myself up for a meritorious service medal, and I was denied that because I had never received an ARCOM, you know, which is Army Commendation. That's an okay. attaboy ribbon, and that attaboy or attagirl ribbon, um, you can be out and do really great during a field exercise for maybe six weeks, and you will get an ARCOM. So I felt like after three years of really slaving there and everything and doing everything, and I wrote up a meritorious service medal for a colleague that I was doing more than he was doing, and he got the meritorious service medal, I was reduced to an ARCOM. And so um, I, when I was getting ready to clear to, to go into the active reserve and leave active duty, I, my, my, the medal came down and I said, I'm not taking that. If I can ask you, uh, what are some of the changes that you've seen first over the years, first with women in the military? Uh, I have seen um, I, I've seen the women being able to get more leadership positions and some of the glass ceilings that uh, commonly were there, like, say, an army, you know, our, our greatest leaders. She, she, we could never be a general. They were just full bird colonels. They could never give above that. And now you're seeing women who are four stars and stuff like that. I really commend all of them. Uh, there are still issues uh, that deal with power. And I would uh, not want to slide our ladies out there. Uh, that we call them, we have a diagnosis that sometimes gets put on your records called MST, military sexual trauma. And that is still prevalent today as it was back then, perhaps in a different way. But it's still something that to be very aware when I see a female veteran, you know, that there's a, there might be some hidden um, injuries that, that they'll never talk about. But when it comes to military sexual trauma, it, to me, it's just a power thing that over another, and you're not going to be, you're afraid to say something because that would ruin your chances of promotion. Well, Margaret, we're going to take a break. And when we come back, we want to hear more of your story. My name is Corporal Bradley Joseph Seitz. Jerry Reed. Kate Weber. These are real veterans facing a real challenge. 
I have PTSD. And I have PTSD. I have PTSD. Post-traumatic stress disorder can happen to anyone. I was still in a war zone in my mind. But treatment can turn your life around. Treatment has really saved my life. To learn about PTSD and how treatment can help you, call your local VA medical center or visit ptsd.va.gov. And we're back. Margaret, if you could tell us about your experience or how did you come about coming to the uh, Dayton VA? (laughs) Well, my husband got orders to go to Germany and I got orders for El Paso, Texas. So uh, Fort Hood, Texas. I said, nope, we didn't marry the Army. So that's how you got us both. (laughs) And uh, I went directly into active Army Reserve where he didn't. And so he went with Delphi and um, very proud of him. For those who didn't know my husband, that he ran the test engineering labs to help with that for 14 years. But after he kept breaking things, they actually had moved him (laughs) to the senior projects program to have him design things. And so before he died, he had given Delco 75 U.S. patents and 50 trade secrets. I'm saying this just to emphasize that our veterans are not dumb clucks. You know, that some people look at us in uniforms and just think that, you know, whatever. But uh, when our veteran comes into the hospital and boy, I was really hard on some of the uh, residents because they sometimes, you know, they see different things if they've been over to, you know, some of the other larger things. Our people are truly heroes and specials and they need to know that and that they uh, come with many skills and talents. And just because my husband lost his hearing and everything else with his terminal diagnosis of sarcoid taking all of his body organs away from him, uh, he was not dumb. And so I, I think advocating for your veteran, and that's where I'm going to call on you all right now, uh, is a fact that we still need a caring community core. It's people taking care of people that make a difference. And Dayton is really a, a wealth of caring people. And where I will tell a person that if once you're in the VA system, whether it's Dayton or other places, you get holistic care. This is something that, you know, if you get farmed out, if you've ever experienced that, but they, they really have a healthcare system and their electronic record system that you can go anywhere in the United States. And all I can say is Dayton has been at the forefront of data record keeping and also coordinating of care. And so if we don't have it here, you know, that we are now given more tools to be able to supplement that. So we give you the well-rounded care and I and community care as well. Exactly. And I said, but the thing is, the community has to keep coming back. And I still said, we still have ways to go. Nova's working on that, saying that the standards that we maintain in the VA for our health care should be also the VA standards expected that the community care that we service out to, they have to make our rigorous standards. And when you look at uh, the different satisfactions and ratings and stuff, the VA system as a whole really is, is up there in, in satisfaction. And and they treat the person as a holistic person. All I can say out of the Dayton VA, you are greeted well and with respect. Uh, and it's, it's always, I got there in 1980. I retired out in 2010. And I still think uh, I have seen just improvements all along there. I was really good at typing skills. 
but you know it's everything's uh, super computerized and i don't do that as well as so as you say they take they take advantage of modern technology yes and, every, and, every and so they say do you want to see your doctor or do you want to do this by zoom or whatever <laughs> right. or or whatever and they can do it both ways and for some people especially out in in western states that are really separated they they are the leaders of that and uh, they have really been and, uh, and we've mentioned this before on the program but uh, the the pandemic the covid-19 Mm-hmm. Uh, global pandemic really uh, pushed that technology forward and, and really started well, they, getting they were already doing um, face to face Tele- to face a tel- we call it Tele- telehealth right. yes. and so the VA was already excelling in telehealth but then it just decided to you know it really took off it so blossomed. it blossomed so um, we run into a lot of objections when talking to veterans about uh, receiving health care through the VA uh, I, some of them are, are misconceptions that they feel they have to have a battle injury or have lost a limb or something of that nature to to get benefits with the VA or that they feel that they're taking away benefits from another veteran uh, if if they apply. Um, What would your advice be to veterans um, who are on the fence or have questions about VA healthcare? What would you tell them uh, to encourage them to uh, seek health care through the VA? Well, when I look at, you know, you've heard of different categories and I went back to NOVA, you know, they're at the, you know, congressional level, you know, they sort of rate veterans, if you will. It's not it's not the VA that does it. It's whatever the Congress is telling us, you know, we're going to give you X amount of money for X, Y and Z. And I think this is where a lot of the myth has come along. But I think every single veteran that I know should go out and inquire and register and have their name on the books. Let them decide later, but learn your benefits. And you actually have uh, a wonderful person in, in the Montgomery County. Uh, we have uh, Kim Frisco's group and everything. Montgomery County Service Office. But do you know your tax dollars pay for a veteran service uh, in every county? All 88 counties. And so some uh, veteran services, you know, are, are perhaps staffed better or whatever, but learn your benefits because you earn them. And uh, it's always easy to, you know, you can always ask, you might hear the word no, but get that uh, courage out there to ask because you, you really, um, I don't want to say we're a dying breed, but only 1% of uh, our Americans today are choosing to serve their country in uniform. And I was there when it flipped from being uh, when you had to go in whether you want to or not, you were drafted mm-hmm. to where it was an all-volunteer service back in about 1974, somewhere around there. So anyway, uh, so it is a choice, and you have made a right choice, and it is a choice that, well, uh, you know, the country should be grateful that you are making that choice, going the extra mile, because I see them, you know, it. The right for you know, our freedoms is not free. You have to really work at that every day to have it. And uh, all I can say is I can leave a little message. That you also have to work at your own personal health. And uh, how I would say is that um, you have to work at your own happiness. And you, now in this day and age with COVID, uh, you know, you hear of all the depression and the kids are all stressed out and everything else by those experiences that we don't have that socialization. But if I can tell you, being and I also know how to cook. But so let's have a recipe of three things. And a lot, you might find this in the, you know, faith, hope and love. But you need to have something to do. Keep this in equal amounts. Don't let it get too out of balance. You need equal parts of something to do. 
You need someone to love. Now, I'm not talking of the love of money, but someone to love. And then the most important thing is something to keep your hoping for in life. So keep those in balance. And that's your recipe for happiness. Work at your happiness every day. That's great information. Thank you so much, Margaret. We've been talking to Army veteran Margaret Krunkmeyer. Uh, you know, it's great to hear stories like uh, yours uh, and from other veterans in our area, especially uh, with unique experiences uh, like you shared with us today. And uh, thanks again for sharing your time and your story. My name is Corporal Bradley Joseph Seitz. Jerry Reed. Kate Weber. These are real veterans facing a real challenge. I have PTSD. And I have PTSD. I have PTSD. Post-traumatic stress disorder can happen to anyone. I was still in a war zone in my mind. But treatment can turn your life around. Treatment has really saved my life. To learn about PTSD and how treatment can help you, call your local VA medical center or visit ptsd.va.gov. If you're homeless or at risk of becoming homeless, we can help. We offer many programs and services, including free health care, and we can help you connect with resources in your community. We help veterans who are homeless or at risk of becoming homeless due to financial hardship, unemployment, addiction, depression, or transition from jail. Contact one of our care coordinators to get help with immediate food and shelter needs, including both transitional and permanent housing, job training, life skills development, and education, justice system navigation, and community reentry from jail, financial support to prevent homelessness, addiction, and depression treatment, along with health and dental care. Now, if you or someone you know that's a veteran who is homeless or at risk of becoming homeless due to financial hardship, unemployment, addiction, depression, or transitioning from jail, the VA Medical Center can help you. Contact a homeless services care coordinator to get help. Contact our health care coordinator at 937-268-6511, extension 1364. We want to say thanks again to our special guests for taking time today to share their story. We truly enjoy hearing stories from veterans from across the region and learning more about how they found care through the Dayton VA Medical Center. And as always, we want to thank our listeners for joining us and remind them if they are a veteran and are not enrolled to enroll with the Veterans Health Administration to receive health care benefits through the Dayton VA Medical Center. It's easy and it doesn't cost a thing. You just need to be a veteran. The simplest way to start enrollment is to call our enrollment and eligibility office at 937-268-6511, extension 4105. They can schedule an appointment for you to come to the Dayton campus or help make an appointment at one of the surrounding community-based outpatient clinics located at Springfield, Richmond, Lima, and Middletown. Again, that number is 937-268-6511, extension 4105. Veterans may also enroll by visiting www.choose.va.gov health. While there, you can choose from applying online or by phone or by mail. It's just that simple, really. As I said before, it doesn't cost a thing to apply. So what are you waiting for? Call us today or 
If you know of a veteran who is not enrolled, have them call to start taking advantage of this benefit. If you're a veteran, it's your VA. Sign up today. Join us again for another episode of My VA Dayton with the Dayton VA Medical Center. Our episodes drop the 1st and 15th of each month. I'm Scott Lease with your co-host, Greg Tucker. Thanks again for listening to My VA Dayton.